Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the Mobilities and Methods series. The series is hosted by the New Books Network in association with the Mobilities and Methods Lab at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The Mobilities and Methods Lab and New Books Network Partnership provides a platform for authors, readers, and their interlocutors to engage closely with questions of mobility and movement. My name is Aliza Rujan. Today, I'm joined by Brandon Andrew Robinson, Assistant Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of California, Riverside. We'll be talking about their book, Coming Out to the Streets, LGBTQ Youth Experiencing Homelessness, published recently by the University of California Press. So congratulations on the book, Dr. Robinson, and thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so to start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you conceived of this book? Sure. So I am a sociologist by training, but I'm now in a gender studies department at UC Riverside. And for this book, I kind of came to conceive it in grad school, of course, as this book came out of my dissertation. In my first year of grad school, one of my advisors, Gloria Gonzalez-Lopez, always told me to do research that is urgently needed and to do research that matters. And so I think those words stuck with me. And so the whole time I was trying to think of what did I want my dissertation to be, I was trying to think about what is urgently needed and what is, and you know, what matters. And as someone who does queer studies and trans studies, of course, I was going to locate that within kind of LGBTQ research. And so during the time uh, when I was trying to think of this project, a lot of kind of LGBTQ rights were in the forefront, but they were specifically about often gay marriage, repealing don't ask, don't tell, and issues around poverty and homelessness within the LGBTQ community wasn't, I would say, being discussed at all, at least in mainstream discourses around LGBTQ people. Partly because I think there's this myth of gay people are affluent and that they don't experience poverty, which is a complete myth and not empirically true at all. Um, But I wanted to understand and study about poverty and homelessness because the statistics were showing that LGBTQ youth disproportionately make up the youth homelessness population, but we didn't really understand their lived experiences, how and why... Um, these things were happening. And so I wanted to, because mainly it was quantitative studies that have shown this. So I wanted to do a qualitative work, working with LGBTQ youth and really trying to understand um, how they understood their perceived pathways into homelessness and how they also understood and experienced homelessness while they were living on the streets and navigating shelters. So I think that's kind of the quick little, how the book came about and started. Yeah, it totally makes sense that you that this question of you know what matters 
uh, what's urgent right now, um, draw your research. And, you know, we can, you know, you can tell even from the introduction where you lay out this landscape where, you know, there's a supposedly progressive and hopeful moment for LGBTQ communities. However, we see that this is not the case, at least, you know, when we take seriously the youth that you're working with um, throughout the book. So, you know, I I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that and how centering young people living in shelter helped you with this critique. Um, and, you know, more broadly, what's at stake in centering people in shelters um, in, you know, in developing this critique? Yeah, so I think I had broadly this critique going into the study of like, why are we focusing on marriage in the military? But I think it really hit me when gay marriage actually was legalized in the middle of my field work. And one of the youth living in the shelter said to me, well, why do I care about that? Marriage is for lawyers and doctors. And it was like, wow, you know, like, these people are dealing with poverty, experiencing deep pain and suffering. And so the privilege to even think about marriage for many of these youth uh, wasn't even a reality. And of course, the issue of marriage in the military meant nothing for them, right? Okay, gays can get married now, but they're still living on the streets. And so the critique that then I kind of make in the book is that this kind of focus or I would say over-focus on LGBT rights has often only focused on single issue. So it's only often focused on sexuality. And in only focusing on sexuality, this focus on rights has overly privileged white, gay, and lesbian issues, middle-class, rich, white, gay, and lesbian issues. And so it's about them getting their rights and them getting their seats at the table through kind of this more assimilation or homonormative politics, which doesn't really do anything for most LGBTQ people who um, aren't middle class and white. And it ignores kind of um, when we give an intersexual analysis that many LGBTQ people who are people of color, poor, um, immigrants, et cetera, are facing a whole host of issues where perhaps marriage or getting access to the military isn't their most dire concern or dire need. And so I think what is at stake when we center youth experiencing homelessness as one of the ways that we should be thinking about queer and trans politics is it really can shift what that politics is and what that politics means, meaning that we don't just see LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ politics about sexuality, but we see issues of poverty, of immigration, of access to healthcare, of violence, of racism, of white supremacy as actual LGBTQ issues as well. And of course, homelessness as an LGBTQ issue. And so I think it gives us a much broader political lens when we um, center these youth. And that, that then allows us to think about forming broader coalitional politics with other groups who are working on immigration, health, homelessness, et cetera. Um, and then what actually help those who are most marginalized in the community instead of helping those who are often the most privileged in the community. Absolutely. And, you know, I just love that in the book, 
you know, you bring up something urgent, but also you bring up something that's like deeply rooted and long term. That's not something that just like came up in a moment. Um, and, you know, the way that you frame the emphasis on sexuality when it comes to, you know, LGBTQ rights or political discourse also makes me think about, you know, the new popularity of intersectionality and sort of the form that it took. So, you know, what does an intersectional analysis look like based on your work? Yeah. Um, so I, I do ground this book deeply in women of color feminism, intersectionality, and queer of color critique. As and what for me, they, what women of color feminism and what queer color critique has always done is actually call identity oftentimes into question. And so another critique of this book is that I think not only have we overly focused on rights, but we've overly focused on identity. And when we overly focus on identity or specifically LGBTQ identity, we miss uh, the embodiments, which I think for many of the youth in my study or as I show in the book, their embodiments and how they embody being black or brown, being gender expansive or trans, deeply shapes their relationships to people and institutions more so than them coming out and identifying as LGBTQ. And women of color feminism has always argued that, that an intersectional analysis will always trouble our notions of identity. Not that we should ever, not that we should fully abandon identity, but we need to think about the complications of identity more broadly than just sexuality or for women of color feminism. Of course, they were challenging the category of woman, which was inherently often about white middle-class women. And so for me, my my deep reliance on intersectionality and later queer of color critique is to continue calling into question identity and how identity and this focus on identity, and specifically this focus on sexuality and often this focus on coming out, isn't how poor LGBTQ youth of color, or at least the ones in my study, are often experiencing their life. They're experiencing their life because they're being policed by their embodiment and enactments of gender on black and brown bodies. And so for them, most of their life wasn't about policing their identity, but about policing their embodiments. And so that's for me what an intersectional analysis really helps me get to. I want to pick up on one of the threads that you mentioned in this very rich answer. Um, you know, you also mentioned that, you know, coming out is not the only sort of defining moments uh, in young young queer people's lives. Um, however, you know, we see a great deal of emphasis on family rejection as, you know, the ultimate um, factor pushing uh, LGBTQ youth to shelters. So could you tell us a bit more about what this focus implies and what it obscures? Yeah, so the main discourse around LGBTQ youth homelessness is that the youth come out as LGBTQ, their families reject them, and that's why they're on the streets. And I think partly this is, again, because most of what we knew was based on quantitative data, and so they were just asking youth to check off, you know, one thing in a box of why they were experiencing homelessness. And my fear with this construction is, one, if we understand that LGBTQ youth who make up the youth homelessness population are disproportionately poor and disproportionately black and brown, that this discourse can 
say that poor people and or black and brown people are more homophobic and transphobic than white middle class people, even though there's no empirical evidence of that whatsoever. And indeed, we can think of the Mike Pence's of the world as also being highly homophobic and transphobic. And of course, most people that are passing homophobic and transphobic laws are white men in power. So um, I so I think that it's a slippery slope if we frame LGBTQ of homelessness around family rejection, a, a racist and classist slippery slope. And so what I found in my work is that it wasn't necessarily about, well, there were several things going on. So most of these youth are black and brown and they grow up in poverty and they grow up in extreme instability. So they had parents that, of course, were experiencing racism that were experiencing over surveillance by the states. So they had incarcerated parents. Over half youth in my study went into child protective services. So the state were, you know, taking them, removing them from the home. Um, they had parents with alcohol and drug use. Many of their parents also experienced homelessness. So they grew up already in this extreme context of racism and stability uh, that accompanies poverty in this society. And so then being LGBTQ kind of became another moment of instability within this context of already extreme instability. But as I argue, it wasn't always necessary about their identity. Again, it was about their embodiment, that this was normally about they were often gender expansive their, you know, their entire lives, basically. And so their parents were often policing their expansive expressions of gender and obviously saw their expansive expressions of gender as signs of non-heterosexuality because of how gender and sexuality are connected in our society. And so this was often a constant tension. So this wasn't like just one day they got kicked out. Like this was often a constant, you know, a conflict over years between the youth and their parents that eventually, on top of all the other instability, the tension and conflict also around their parents policing their gender and sexuality becomes the straw that breaks the camel's back, and they eventually decide to go to the streets. Now, I mean, I, I'll say, you know, all the youth of my study came from backgrounds of poverty and instability, and so I think we need to realize that. Like, these are not middle-class LGBTQ kids that are experiencing homelessness, and I deeply believe LGBTQ middle-class white kids are also being rejected by their parents. But my assumption is, though it's an empirical question that hopefully someone will research, is that they have other social networks, an aunt who knows a good friend's parent that takes them in, that these youth don't because of the extreme poverty that they come from. Yeah, I find it, you know, really amazing that your work also generates all these questions and even, you know, more questions about sort of like middle class middle-class queerness, middle-class queer homelessness, and hopefully somebody will um, pick this up. And, you know, before we before we delve more deeply into your work, I also was wondering if you could tell us about where your research was located and how sort of how the shelter system works there uh, for our readers. You mean like my field sites? Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um... So I conducted this project mainly at two different spaces. One was a drop-in center in Austin that was open three days a week in the afternoons, basically. And they provided, you know, a safe place for the youth to come for a few hours on those three days to get off the streets. They gave them clothing, food, 
bus passes. They had, you know, a host of resources for the youth. And so there I mainly volunteered in the clothing closet. And that's how I met a lot of the youth and interviewed them. The other primary place that my data comes from is a specific LGBTQ youth shelter in San Antonio, where there I did volunteer shifts at night. So I would stay over at night at the shelter with the youth. And again, it was all there, all LGBTQ youth. Um, and I would hang with the youth, uh, just be there for the youth, watch movies with the youth, etc., help them if they needed anything. And then I conducted also formal interviews with the youth there. So those are kind of the two brief places where I conducted most of the research. Yeah, that's I'm sure that's great for our uh, listeners to know. Um, and yeah, so your research is grounded in these shelters. And we see that, you know, throughout your ethnography, that, you know, the social services that LGBTQ youth are supposed to receive are actually spaces of control in many ways, and you call this queer control complex. So um, could you tell us more about this term and, you know, what is politically at stake in thinking through control as something systemic rather than, you know, an exception for queer youth? Yeah, so the second substantive chapter of the book looks at the queer control complex, which partly this chapter is also trying to complicate the family rejection narrative so that this isn't just about families as an institution failing LGBTQ youth. This is also about many other institutions and services that are also failing them and that are also not protective for them. So here I look at schools, um, child protective services, or what I call the child state custody systems. I look at religion, but religion in connection to social services. And then I also work at the workplace. And so what I'm trying to do here is look at how all these institutions come together to police the gender and sexuality of black and brown youth. And so what does it mean when black and brown bodies and people are gender expansive and how these institutions deeply punish the youth try to control them, try to make them uphold white notions of the gender binary and heteronormativity. And when they don't, they get suspended, they get expelled, they get kicked out of schools, they get denied social services at religiously affiliated social services. Um, They get housed in the wrong housing when they're in foster care and child protective services. Uh, They get discriminated against in the workplace. And all of these kind of systemic things are happening that are policing these youth and trying to control them. And therefore, and when the youth resist, they get pushed out or they leave these institutions as its own form of resistance of saying, I'm not going to follow these this control and I want freedom from this control. And so I'm going to choose the streets. Uh, uh, a harrowing, I would say, moment for me I was writing the book though was when I talk about bullying in schools as part of the queer control complex that I haven't still fully, I don't know, wrapped my mind around. But I really started, you know, all my youth talked about being bullied, bullied, and they would fight back against the bullies, and then they would be the ones that get expelled, or they would be the ones that get arrested. But I really trying to think about bullying as a process within the queer control complex, that maybe LGBTQ youth can't even understand being LGBTQ outside of being bullied. 
that bullying is a defining feature, either experiencing actual bullying or the fear of being bullied is one of the only ways that LGBTQ understand their life and that it deeply shapes how they understand being LGBTQ. And so I guess more broadly then, the queer control complex might be what shapes LGBTQ life and that it might be impossible to understand being LGBTQ outside of these institutions, policing and punishing uh, expansive expressions of gender and sexuality in addition to racial profiling. So, you know, obviously black and brown youth will disproportionately bear the brunt of this gender and sexual policing because of how it intersects with racism and racial profiling. And so for me, that's kind of a harrowing. I mean, I think that's kind of what's at stake is like right now, maybe we can only understand being LGBTQ or especially LGBTQ youth through punishment and control and policing. And that's not, I think, a healthy way or a good way or a positive way or a pleasurable way um, to really think, you know, to develop as a human being and to become, you know, to recognize youth's humanity, I I would say. Um, So I think we need to deeply rethink, you know, institutions and how they're set up right now to control certain um, embodiments and enactments of gender, sexuality and race. Absolutely. Wow. Um, Yeah, you know, speaking of how deeply policing shape um, young people's lives, uh, I want to go back to your points on policing. Um, You know, as an urban ethnographer myself, I was, you know, I was especially drawn to the parts where you describe sort of... um, these negotiations of urban space between the police and uh, youth experiencing homelessness. Uh, But, you know, even beyond the streets, like we see that in shelters or even in jail, um, that there's this constant sort of struggle to um, claim space or make space. Um, So uh, what do you think about this question of the relationship between queer mobility and the policing of queer youth. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great question. And of course, in my chapter on the new lavender scare, it's probably the one that gets at this the most, where I'm specifically zooming in on police and how they're, well, I would argue they're trying to erase black and brown queer and trans bodies from the public sphere that inherently we want this kind of sanitized urban landscape and what sanitized gets conflated with is of course capitalism which gets conflated with that we kind of want just white middle class people or people who embody and act white middle classness to be what we see visually as we're walking down the streets and so the police become this arm of the states to try to again control um bodies in public spaces and where they can be, where they can move, what they can be. And I think, well, as I show, Black and Brown LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness, I think deeply bear the brunt of this. So what I try to do in this chapter, because so much of the urban policing and urban sociology and urban poverty literature is often just focused on race and class. Um, 
And so I built on that amazing and brilliant work. And of course, I built on Michelle Alexander's work and the new Jim Crow to think about what I call the new lavender scare of how gender and sexuality intersect with race and class to police, over police, over jail, the youth in my study. I mean, the youth in my study were constantly having run-ins with police are constantly being thrown in jail. And these were often mechanisms to, again, control and regulate black and brown bodies who are queer and trans or who embody and enact expansive expressions of gender and sexuality in public sphere. So they were often assumed, they were hypersexualized. They were often assumed to be sex workers. They were often given um, prostitution charges, et cetera. So um, I was trying. So I'm, I was also trying to think about the homelessness literature, which of course looks at quality of life ordinances as this form of poverty governance of criminalizing homelessness through sitting on benches and lying down in public and you know loitering laws, etc. And how again, gender and sexuality kind of complicate or exacerbate these issues of quality of life ordinances um, in the policing of certain bodies. And in this chapter, when you think about queer mobility and space and policing, my fear, and again, it's another empirical question that some people are beginning to touch on who are studying gayborhoods uh, or gay neighborhoods. My fear is that white middle-class LGBTQ people, or especially white middle-class gay and lesbian people, rely on police to also cleanse the urban landscape. And they want black and brown LGBTQ youth, LGBTQ people out of these gay neighborhoods as well. They want, so they become complicit in the policing of, you know, other parts of their community uh, because they buy into this kind of capitalistic notion of what urban space should look like and be. Uh, So that's part of, how I end the chapter with that fear. Yeah, that's a very well-grounded fear, you know, something that in Chicago, where I go to grad school, is something that, you know, I I get to observe, unfortunately. And, you know, I think it's wonderful that you bring up this point because then we also see that, you know, in some ways, policing also shapes the subjectivity of, you know, white middle class um, gay people. So, yeah, that's that's actually that's actually great and very mind opening. And I hope somebody um, somebody takes a cue from <laughs> your wonderful provocations. Um, and building on that, um, you know, we talked about how how young people's queerness are shaped. Uh, through you, these different forms of policing and control. And I'm wondering how they cope with this situation, what kind of everyday strategies uh, they develop, uh, and you know how they basically push back against control. Okay, so yeah, uh, so they were resisting in every chapter as I try to show. And I think this really, I try to drive this home most importantly, though, in the Queer Street Smarts chapter, where I think about the knowledges and strategies, especially around gender and sexuality, that the youth had to gain to really learn how to navigate the streets, navigate shelters. And so as I show in that chapter, they had to learn what shelters were safe for LGBTQ people. Um, so there was there's this courtyard in San Antonio where hundreds of 
people experiencing homelessness sleep every night. And this was often a very unsafe space for the youth. Um, it was gender segregated, like most homelessness shelters are. And during most of the study, uh, if you were trans, you had to s- go sleep with the sex or gender that you were assigned at birth. And they literally had to wear a blue name tag if they were labeled as men or boys and a pink tag if they were labeled as women. Um, And so it was a very kind of violent space. You've talked about getting peed on there for being LGBTQ, um, very violent. So you've learned to resist that space, to not go there. I mean, I try to think on, I mean, on some level, I think resistance sometimes looks harrowing, right? So I think about them leaving the family or not going to homelessness services or leaving schools and literally choosing the streets as a form of resistance. And I do think it is a form of resistance because it's saying I refuse to be policed and regulated in these institutions and in these agencies and services. But it's also like deeply scary that they think the streets is like the safest place for them and that's what they choose as their way to resist these institutions. So on some of I use resistance to think we really need to think about what's going on. I mean, another example is like um, in Bear County, which is the county of, in San Antonio, there's a specific LGBTQ cell block that I write about in the New Lavender Scare chapter. And some youth did not want to be put in there because they're like, I'm a woman, I should be in the women's you know, jail, not in the LGBTQ jail or whatever. But some youth were like, you know, I I met other LGBTQ people there. I could form community there. You know, we were singing. We found joy there. And so, I, I yes, I think we should think about finding joy in an LGBTQ style block. Or in the fifth chapter, I talk about them finding joy at the specific LGBTQ shelter and building community and friends and families in these spaces. But it's also deeply... But I also, again, like to think about that resistance to make us deeply think, like, what does it mean for poor LGBTQ youth, especially poor LGBTQ black and brown youth, that some of the only places that they're finding community is jails and shelters. I mean, that should haunt us and that should terrify us and that should, you know, make us want to do something right now to enact change because that's that no one, I don't even think jails and shelters should exist, but no one should even be finding, you know, that's the place where they're finally meeting other LGBTQ people. That's when they're finally building friendships. And so I show how they resist constantly racial profiling, gender policing, the policing of their sexuality. But then I also like to think about the unintended consequences of that resistance, such as the streets are sometimes an unintended consequence of that. And then to think about, okay, what can we do? Because these unintended consequences are also very frightening and also very, you know, should not be happening. But coping, I mean, on a very basic level, they coped in very, I mean, they listened to music, they prayed, they um, they social support, of course. They relied on each other all the time, friendship, relationships. Um, what else? I mean, drugs and alcohol, of course. Uh, that's a main way to cope with social suffering and marginality in the society. So, I mean, they also just had very basic kind of uh, ways of coping as well. Uh, wow. Yeah, that's that's deeply haunting indeed. Um, and yeah, I want to ask you some questions about methodology. But before we turn to that, I'm also wondering... Why Texas? And, you know, like, is there, yeah, like, I wonder if, you know, it was more of a practical choice or if there's something about Texas that, you know, reveals these 
uh, important critiques more powerfully? Yeah, um, I get asked this question a lot, and so I briefly address it in the book. Um, but of course, the answer I give in the book is the academic answer. I mean, the real answer is, of course, practicality, which should be an academic answer itself because it's a question about methods, right? It's like I was getting my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. Austin was where I lived. San Antonio is 80 miles away. So it was just about uh, practicality. It was also somewhat happenstance, which is also a method thing as well, because at the time I was, I talked to someone in Arkansas because they had just opened an LGBTQ shelter there. And so I was thinking about doing at least half of my fieldwork in Arkansas and the other half in Austin. And then literally the LGBTQ shelter in San Antonio opened literally since I started my project. I mean, it was complete happenstance. And so there were, there's practicality and happenstance, which to me are methods questions. Like, you know, oftentimes we choose opportunism and practicality. The academic answer I give, which I still think is a good answer and is also accurate and right, is that we often study LGBTQ people only in Los Angeles, Chicago, San Francisco, New York, even though the South is where uh, more LGBTQ people live in the South than any other region in the U.S. Um, And so I think we do need more studies on LGBTQ people in the South, not only the urban South, which is, of course, where my work takes place, but all throughout the South, we need more work. Um, and Austin and San Antonio are, you know, two of the largest cities in the country, and yet they're often not studied at all within urban sociology. And, you know, I think we really need to be taking the South seriously in a lot of the academic work that we're producing. I honestly think both are great answers. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Austin is very, is a place where you can see sort of like, the cleaning out of the city, you know, it's very like clean cut, pretty, but unquestionably, I mean, yeah. it's like, and I briefly write this like, it's one of the main places you can study gentrification, and I feel like we're not because it's like displacing black people. It's like the only urban city that's losing black people. I mean, they're getting displaced in, you know, wild high numbers, and. They're just developing, they're just building up as tech continues to come. I mean, I'm assuming it's going to look like what Silicon Valley has done to the Bay Area at some point. And I think it's ripe for us to be studying these things so we can put us, try to stop them and change what's going on. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't know if this is a prevalent discourse between sociologists who are doing ethnography, but in anthropology, there's this pervasive notion that you have to go elsewhere or like somewhere far away to sort of, you know, earn your keep as a legitimate ethnographer or academic. And I love that, you know, you grounded your study in where you live and, you know, did meaningful work for the community that you were also a part of. So that's wonderful. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Uh, I want to shift gears from my flattery uh, (laughs) and and turn to your methodology a little bit. Um, So you already touched upon, you know, your research process a little bit, but I was wondering if you could, Tell us more about how you positioned yourself uh, in these shelters and like throughout your work and, 
yeah, how how did you start going on, going about your field work? Yeah, um, so I knew from the beginning that I wanted to be a volunteer at whatever organizations were going to give me access. And so I went in, well, I got access to both sites differently. So the place in Austin, it's a huge uh, organization that works on homelessness and they literally have their own like research part of their organization and have their own institutional review board and everything. So they knew about researchers already because they've already, they do it, they collaborate with them. But I met with a, a bunch of higher ups there, told them who I was, what I was interested in and told them I also wanted to volunteer. And they're like, well, we really need someone in the clothing closet. Um, and so I was like, okay, well, I'm a Virgo, I'm a perfectionist, I can fold clothes all day long, this is perfect. Um, (laughs) It was just a match made in heaven. And there, uh, like I said, I mainly interacted with the youth in the clothing closet, and then I would do a survey with them, and all youth, because they they worked with also um, straight youth as well, it wasn't just LGBTQ youth and cis youth. Uh, so I did a survey with any youth who wanted to do the survey and they gave them a bus pass and then youth who emerged from the survey as being LGBTQ, I would then conduct an interview, um, and then they would get like a $10 gift card. And so that there, it was kind of a much more, I guess, I feel like a traditional way of accessing an organization for research. The place in, uh, San Antonio, I just... It took me a few months before I told the director that I was a researcher. So I started volunteering there as soon as it opened, because like I said, it was brand new. And then I would say I was there for maybe like three, four months. And then I was like, hey, um, I want to do a project on LGBTQ experiencing homelessness. Um, Of course, they had just opened, so they have never worked with a researcher before. So it was a completely different experience. I think because I had like reliably shown up every week, and had been there, that she really trusted me. And so after that happened, I mean, all the youth who stayed there, you know, we told them I was a researcher, what I was doing. Most of them had already known me, and so they were more than willing to be interviewed by me. Um, And when new youth came in, I introduced myself as a researcher right away. And again, there, I volunteered. I was the only volunteer there at night. Like, I did the night shifts from, like, 9 p.m. to 7 a.m. or 6 a.m. or something. Um, I try to block that out because I'm not a night person. So it was a painful 18 months of trying to be a night person. (laughs) Um, But I would be the only one there just with the youth if they needed anything. Um, So yeah, that's kind of generally how I got access and, you know, how I volunteered at both places while conducting research. And, you know, we see that throughout the book and I mean even in the appendix which I enjoy reading to be honest um, we see that your own you know class and gender embodiment figures into how you locate your research Um, so could you tell us a bit more about that and how that impacted your methodological choices yeah so class became very apparent the very first week I was in the field because I was wearing a G-Shock watch, which is like a $100 watch. Um, and youth would comment on the watch. And so I realized very quickly that this was a marker of class. Um, 
And so I, I stopped wearing the watch and I would only wear jeans and t-shirts when I was with you because I didn't want to like establish myself as somehow better than them, different than them or anything that I'm not. And so I just started dressing basically how the youth dress and jeans and t-shirts. And I tried to um, always have my backpack with me because I was a grad student and we always have our backpacks with us. And yeah. <laughs> so that was, but the watch moment was when I really realized that I had to be more conscious of what I was going to wear when I was doing my field work. The gender embodiment, I think works my favor because I'm, I'm, I'm a feminine. I have an expansive expression of gender. I'm non-binary, I'm queer, et cetera. And so many of the youth already assumes I was gay or queer because I'm a feminine. Uh, many of the trans people, especially the trans women, also assumed I was a trans woman. They would be shocked when I introduced myself as Brandon. They'd be like, wait, but what? Well, what's your actual name? Like, we know that, like, okay, that's your birth name, but what's your... And I'm like, no, I call my Brandon. But they would give me, you know, women nicknames. They would call me... The, some of the people in San Antonio would call me Miss Travis County because Austin's in Travis County. And so since I was traveling from Austin, I'd be like, oh, Miss Travis County is here. Look who walked in, Miss <laughs> Travis County. Um, they would, of course, call me girl, ma'am. And so I think, you know, my gender embodiment, being queer, feminine, gender expansive, really helped me build rapport with so many of the youth because they I never told them I was gay or queer or non-binary, any of that. But they just assumed that because of my embodiment and I think I built deep relationships with many of them because of that. And we always just had this kind of shared recognition of being queer and or gender expansive. And so I think it really played, um, in the methodological sense, it helped me build deeper rapport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, however, in especially in San Antonio, like you're positioned as someone who's you know a part of these institutions, uh, which you know seems to be like an interesting tension with your critique of shelters or like social services more broadly as forms of governmentality. Um, so, you know, how did you navigate this tension and, you know, do you have any suggestions for any of our listeners who might do similar research? I don't know how under these current circumstances, but, (laughs) um, yeah, I mean, I, being a researcher volunteer was really hard at the shelter because I was the only one there. And I was supposed to enforce the rules, even though, I mean, obviously I critiqued the rules in the book and I knew the whole time the rules were messed up. You know, I was supposed to enforce curfew. I was supposed to make, enforce bedtime. I mean, I was supposed to enforce all these infantilizing, dehumanizing rules. And yeah, I was the one that was supposed to watch over them, right? So I was the one that was supposed to surveil them and police them. Um which I lost a lot of sleep over. You know, I had a walkie-talkie on me at all time that I could call the, the security to come if I needed it. Um, and it was hard because, well, one, I knew the rules were, you know, I didn't believe in the rules and I had no desire in enforcing them. Um, and ultimately, also, I wanted to build rapport. I mean, that's part of my job as an ethnographer. And so I knew if enf- enforcing the rules would probably not help me build rapport either. And lastly, you know, I just, 
this was ultimately a study about the youth and their humanity. And so I needed to put that forward and make that be my guiding um, lights. So in the appendix, of course, I write about this tension. I mean, there was one moment where one of the youth got very violent. Um, and it's probably the moment that haunts me the most methodologically. Well, I guess there's two moments that haunt me the most. So that's one of them. This youth got violent. Um, he started throwing things and breaking things. And a lot of the other youth felt unsafe. And they told me I needed to use the walkie-talkie to call security. And as someone who's anti-police, anti-surveillance, I didn't know what to do in that moment. Um, and as I write, I ultimately call security. But I talk to security. Security and I get the youth to calm down. And they don't kick him out, which is normally the punishment if you're breaking a rule. They kick you to the streets, which also is batshit crazy to me. Because if you're trying to solve homelessness, how are you going to put people back on the streets? Um, and I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I made the right decision. And hindsight, maybe I didn't. But I also, I also like, who would have? What would have happened if I didn't call security? I don't know. I don't know. And I think that's what you have to wrestle with. I mean, the other moment that I write about in the book is one of the youth was cutting himself one night, and um, I decided not to call nobody and just sit with the youth all night and just tell the staff member who got there the next morning what happened. Um, and I don't know if that was the right decision either. So I, there was obviously methodological quandaries that they're hard to deal with. I mean, I turned to my advisor, one of my advisors, Gloria Gonzalez-Lopez's concept of meth- mindful ethics, and I built on that to call what I call compassionate detachment, that when we just need to realize as ethnographers, a lot of things are going to happen in the field that we cannot prepare for, that IRB ain't going to prepare you for, your proposal ain't going to prepare you for, and you know, the field is messy, the field is complicated. And I think you just got to try to center the people that you care about the most in your study and try to center their humanity and their safety. Um, Of course, you got to care about your own safety. But I don't know if your own safety should be your primary concern. I've, at least with the youth I'm working with, I mean, I would put their safety before mine. Um, Of course, it was complicated because, you know, one person's safety might be someone else's unsafety at the shelter because they were fighting all the time and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I guess I don't have the answers. It's just, no, the field's going to be messy and just try to recognize the humanity of the people that you're working with and try to keep that centered in the here and now and in the decisions that you make. But, you know... I mean, you also might, I mean, I, I got a therapist. You might have to get you a therapist. I mean, let's be real about what happens in the field. I mean, it's true. <laughs> and, you know, I think this is a great answer in itself that, like, affirms what a lot of us go through um, in the field. And, yeah, like, I don't understand why they put these parts in the appendix. <laughs> You know, to me, the, this is like one of the, um, I don't know, one of the most important parts of the book, actually. But I'm glad we got to talk about it. <laughs> um, so before we wrap up, uh, I want to ask you what you would want readers to take away from your book politically or what kind of political work do you wish your book uh to do yes so i try to devote the conclusion to this big question and i try to center the youth solutions in that chapter so i think politically we should take away 
that we need to be talking to LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness about what they think we should be doing to solve um, LGBTQ youth homelessness and that we should be centering them and that any table, any policy, any discussion about this issue better have LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness at that table and at that discussion or you're doing the work wrong. Um, and I, so I try to do that in the conclusion by centering their voices, though ultimately I'm the author and the course had the ultimate decision and authority over how I did that. But I think we need to be centering their voices. Okay, politically, I think there's a lot we need to do, obviously. And I try in the conclusion to give like small things that I think we can literally change today and how they can lead to bigger things in a, a new world. I mean, I think we need to create a new and different society. Let's be real. Uh, but some of the things briefly, you know, I argue or say, I give the concept of the queer and trans support complex as this kind of alternative to the control complex, because LGBTQ people, my understanding, when I think about it, they're one of the only marginalized groups that often grow up alone. So most people of color grow up around other people of color. Most religious minorities grow up around other religious minorities. Women grow up around women. But most LGBTQ people don't grow up around other LGBTQ people. So I think we need to find a way to always have LGBTQ people in LG- other LGBTQ people's lives and that we need to start building um, ways of care um, and role modeling and support, whatever you want to call it, um, at a very early age. You know, may, I think that's one thing we definitely need to do. And, and that helps us not just rely on the family as an institution, but that we can build this kind of larger supports. Um, I mean, on so, I mean, some things is like, well, this caused a little controversy, but I think we can get rid of gender segregated everything. Like we don't need gender segregated bathrooms. Like we, we all use the same bathroom in homes. Um, we don't need gender segregated bathrooms. And that alone is a thing that I think we can do today. And that can deeply change the lives of many um, trans and gender expansive people. I mean, we we got rid of racially segregated restrooms. It's time to get rid of gender segregated ones because they're upholding, you know, structures of domination. Um, I mean, as I already said, we, sh- we need to abolish police and prisons. We need to invest in care and not punishment. And we can start today defunding police and defunding prisons and diverting that money to healthcare and to addressing poverty and into affordable housing. I mean, we can do that today. We can start that process today. Um, I, I think a big thing that I took out of the book because I I want to read. I want to say this because I don't want people to read the book and think that the LGBTQ shelter was a horrible place. The staff, especially the director at the LGBTQ shelter, were amazing, amazing human beings. And what I try to show in the book is that they're just caught up in a larger structure of shelter funding and of shelter governmentality. And, and so I took away that, like, even if we have the best shelter there is, which I think this shelter is probably one of them, you know, they're they're taking care of LGBTQ people, they're helping them get hormones, they're helping them change their names on IDs, that even if we have the best shelter there is, at the end of the day, it's still a shelter and it sucks. And it's still a place of regulation and policing. And so I came out of this as a shelter abolitionist, as I write in the conclusion, that we also need to stop funding shelters and we need to divert shelters to housing. We need to just be housing people. Housing should be a human right. Everyone deserves housing. 
And that as long as we're funneling money into shelters, that money's being taken away from housing. And so I think we got, need to abolish shelters and divert funding from shelters into housing, um, which to me was one of the biggest takeaways that I got from my own study. I mean, I already went into the study as you know a prison abolitionist and that just became more solidified. But afterwards I was like, okay, I'm also a shelter abolitionist. Like we just need housing. Housing is the solution. Um, so yeah, I think those are some of the takeaways I want them to think. I mean, going back to the original conversation, we also just need to stop focusing on single issue identity and single issue politics. We need to just, we need to be centering the most marginalized and LGBTQ communities. Uh, we need to be seeing poverty, homelessness, immigration, healthcare as LGBTQ issues. We need to be thinking about broader coalitional building around those issues, and that we need to move away from the how white middle class gay and lesbian people have defined LGBTQ politics and LGBTQ life because it ain't helping nobody but them, you know. It's helping Pete Buttigieg, but it ain't helping nobody else. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm trying not to make a Joe Biden joke. Okay. <laughs> That's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I think we should stay vigilant, no matter <laughs> who becomes the president. Amen. Uh, all right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Robinson, for these wonderful insights. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it was truly a pleasure to talk about your book and many other political facets of life with you today <laughs> thank you thank you no. um all right i am Alizarjan. this discussion of coming out to the streets lgbtq youth experiencing homelessness published by the university of california press in 2020 is brought to you by the new books network in association with the mobilities and methods lab at the university of illinois at chicago thank you for listening